Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. At Igniting Your Faith, we strive to motivate listeners toward a full life in Jesus Christ by sharing the love and life-changing force of God's Word. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. And if you're joining us online, we're delighted that you're tuning in. Pray that the Lord blesses each and every one of us. And let's bow in prayer as we get into the Word this morning. Father, breathe on us today. Breathe on your people. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Lord Jesus, we're praying in your name. We're asking through you. Thank you that you are living and praying and interceding for us right now. And so we pray for your covering. We ask that you would help us to receive what you would give us this morning in the word and the spirit and life and truth and love. Thank you, Lord, for calling us out of the world, breathing on us to put our faith in you and raising us from death into life. And now may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, in this sermon series, we're looking at Israel's wilderness experience and the conquest of Canaan to learn lessons for us as God's people today. In Israel, God was preparing a people to be set apart for himself of all the people in the world. Here's what Paul describes these lessons in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10. Here's how he he describes it. They were all baptized into Moses. They all went under the cloud and through the sea. They all drank from the same spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. But nevertheless, God was not pleased with some of them. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation is overtaking you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So this morning we're considering the beginnings of Israel as a nation and to look at some of these lessons and, and some of those episodes that uh, Paul describes there in 1 Corinthians 10, we'll be visiting in, in the sermon series as we go forward. I just want to kind of frame for you a minute why this is important and why this is relevant for us today. You know that God calls his people to be holy. He set us aside and set us apart to be holy out of all the people of the world. You know, when Israel uh, came into the world... It began with God's call on Abraham. And it's easy to forget what the world was like. 
before Abraham's call. You know, the, the last episode that's reported in detail before his call is the episode of the Tower of Babel, in which all, this, uh, all the nations of the world, all the peoples are together, they're in one language, there's no nations, there's no division, and they're all united against God. And they're building this enormous tower, probably built on the skulls of each other because that's what happens when you're united against God. And God sees what they're doing, building this tower as high as heaven so they can never be drowned again. We'll never let ourselves be subject to you again, God. That's the spirit and the attitude of rage and rebellion and independence and self-worship that was in the human race. And that's why when God sees Babel, he says, this is not good. You know, they, they will do whatever they set their minds to and they'll just be horrific in what they become. And so he confused their languages and separated them and that became the basis of tribes and nations and kingdoms. And all these kingdoms are worshiping idols. It's like God says, you don't want me Go off and worship those demons that you prefer to follow instead of me. Because Moses says that's the spirit behind the idols of the nations. It's demons. So it's all the peoples of the world, including Abraham's family. It says Terah was an idol worshiper. That they were worshiping these demons around the world. Think of the terrible things that people do to each other under the influence of demonic spirits. Paul gives a list of those in Galatians Chapter 5, they're really the works of the sinful human nature. The acts of the flesh, and when he says flesh, he means the sinful nature. They are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You just think about that list for a, a minute, and that's what the world was entirely before God begins to call a people and set them apart for him. And this new nation that God instituted by the call of Abraham, who heard God saying, leave your family, leave this town, go to a new place I'll show you, and I'll give it to you, and I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great. And I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'll be on your side. Come and be on my side. And Abraham responds. You know, we really don't know how many people God said that to do uh, to who blew him off. And so the world remained in darkness. But Abraham said yes. And he left his family, he took his wife and his, his uh, belongings and those, his nephew Lot, and they took off to go where God sent them to go. They began to be set apart, set out from the evil and sin of the idolatrous nations, whom God had handed over to live apart from him, because that's what they wanted. But Abraham chose God. And that new nation was called to be set apart for God, called to be holy, different from the other nations, to be God's own people. And for that purpose, that through that people, he might bring blessings and salvation to the whole world. You know, I suspect that the demons, if they'd understood God's plan, would have done 
And they probably did do everything they could to destroy Abraham, but God had his protective hand on him. They couldn't touch him. Abraham's promised son Isaac came by supernatural birth and fulfillment of God's promise. And, and then Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And it says about Esau that he despised his birthright. He despised spiritual things. He despised his long-term good. But Jacob pursued God. And Jacob wasn't perfect. You know that his name means conniver, deceiver. There's plenty of wrong in his story. But in it all, God sought him and he pursued God. That whole episode where he wrestles with God in terror when he's about to meet his brother Esau, who he's cheated out of his inheritance blessing. And that night he wrestles with God and he doesn't let go of God. He says, I won't let go of you until you bless me. And God does bless him, and he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. You've wrestled with God and overcome. You've persevered. You've hung in there. And so Jacob, renamed Israel, becomes the father of that nation with his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. This new nation begins to take off. Now, one of those sons was Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers and sold as a slave down in Egypt. But from there, God raised him to prominence as the prime minister of Egypt. And during the ensuing famine, he became the savior of both Egypt and his own family. And at that time, his family moved to Egypt. Jacob and Joseph's 11 brothers and all their families, about 70 persons in all. And from that beginning, right there, the Egyptians detested them because they were shepherds. It was a cultural thing. Egyptians were mostly farmers, not shepherds. And people who did that, they kind of looked down on, thought of as unclean, out and out. And so Joseph arranged for them to get their own land apart from the Egyptians, the land of Goshen, inside Egypt. But they treated them well at that time for Joseph's sake, giving them that region. And there they began to grow in number and increase from that small family tribe of 70 people into a very numerous people. And that's where this, the account that Tom read in Exodus 1 comes in today. As they start to grow and grow and grow, exceedingly prolific, big families, lots of kids. And the more they grow, the more there are, the more the Egyptians begin to be afraid of them. And then a pharaoh comes on the scene who doesn't know Joseph, has no sense of loyalty or connection to him or his family for saving Egypt. And in that place, they begin to be scared of those Israelites. Well, they're so numerous that if they, they decide to turn against us, we're in trouble. And so they begin to oppress them. They, they turn them into slaves to do forced labor and keep them in control. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So Pharaoh commanded the baby boys to be killed so they could not grow up to become warriors that might serve an enemy. You know, at first the command was subtle, and the midwives were supposed to be the secret executioners. But they refused to carry out the king's order. You know, there's a time, folks, when the government tells you to do something that's against the will of God, and there is a time to be disobedient. And they were, because they feared God and would not obey the order to kill the babies, God rewarded them by giving them families of their own. 
You know, when Pharaoh saw that method wasn't working, he ordered the army to get involved and to forcibly remove those babies and throw them into the Nile. Now, remember that the Nile was worshipped by the Egyptians as a god, as one of their deities. You can imagine that as the Egyptians are watching the soldiers throw those babies into the Nile, they're thinking, oh my, look at that holy act of worship. Murderous horror, relabeled by the world to be something different. And I think this is one of the reasons that in the plagues of God's judgment on them, it was to turn the Nile to blood. In recompense for the blood of those innocent babies, he made the Egyptians drink blood. Now, if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, the same thing is described as happening in the last days. The world drunk with the blood of the saints, being forced to drink blood because of the murderous spirit that's upon them. But in the midst of that unfolding tragedy, Moses was born. His mother saw that he was not an ordinary child, but she was also not an ordinary mother. Think about it. When all the other mothers were surrendering their babies to the soldiers, she hid hers for as long as she could. She resisted the evil of the empire. And for three months, she raised him until he's too big to hide anymore. And even then, she didn't surrender him. She made an escape route. She put that basket together and coated it with pitch, made sure it was waterproof, stuck her baby in there, and then set him secretly afloat and set her daughter to watch what was going to happen. And you know how that story unfolds. The Pharaoh's daughter finds him and has pity on him, takes him in and raises him as her own. She's the one that names him Moses. And he grew up to be God's instrument to lead Israel out of Egypt in a mighty deliverance. After the Lord poured out those ten plagues and judgment on Egypt and its gods. And after the last plague, Pharaoh let Israel go. Now, that was, of course, the night of the Passover when the angel of death passed over Israel, but at midnight slew the firstborn of Egypt. The final judgment on Pharaoh and his son and all the firstborn of Egypt because they worshipped Pharaoh as a god and Pharaoh was the one who wouldn't let Israel go. And finally, he lets them go. That night, Pharaoh commanded the Israelites to leave and Scripture records it was 430 years to the day from the time they'd arrived in Egypt. Now consider for a moment what God was doing during that 400 years. Why let them suffer so? Why let them get oppressed, sidelined, turned into slaves, then have their babies murdered so that increasingly life was horrible for them? Forced to work to build the structures of power and wealth of their Egyptian overlords. And then their children taken from them and killed. Yet in the middle of that suffering, something was happening. They grew into a people, a nation. They entered with 70. 430 years later, they departed with about 600,000 men plus women and children. They didn't get absorbed into Egypt. That's a key thing I want you to see. And I think it's especially important because they were rejected and oppressed by the Egyptians. They did not accommodate themselves to Egyptian culture. 
If they had been accepted and loved, they might have been tempted to just stay in Egypt and become indistinguishable from that worldly nation with all its idol worship and evil ways. The Egyptian gods may well have been detestable to the Israelites because they were the sum and representation of the mistreatment they received at Egyptian hands. But instead, they retained their faith in the one true God. In the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that suffering, they did not imitate Egypt's idolatry, its immorality, its values, because they were not welcomed by the Egyptians. And so set apart through suffering, they began to grow as a people in number and be prepared to be God's people in character. The Lord used their hardships to help them stay separate from those worldly and evil ways of Egypt. Now, folks, the church is called to be set apart, holy, different from the world, belonging to God. The church is spiritual Israel, what Israel was always meant to become. But the church is always in danger of becoming just like the world, imitating its values, worshiping its gods, losing its saltiness. You know, what does Jesus say in, in the Sermon on the Mount about salt and light? You are the salt of the earth. Now, what's salt? It's a preservative. It's uh, a state of purity. It gives flavor, but it keeps things from rotting and becoming useless. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You know, I think that's one of the reasons the church in America has been trampled underfoot so much by the cultures, because we've lost our saltiness. We've become just like the culture in so many ways. We have immorality in the church. We have greed in the church. We have worldliness in the church. We have envy and dissensions and, 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 and uh, anger and rage and uh, worldly emotions. We have people practicing witchcraft in the name of Jesus. We have people engaging in, in sexual debauchery and self-destruction, destroying their bodies, trying to turn themselves from male to female, female to male, rejecting the way God has made them in imitation of the world inside the church. God's the one who said in the law, it's detestable to me to see a man dress as a woman and a woman as a man. What do you think he put it in there for? He put it in there because he is the one who made us male and female from the beginning. His creation. It's one of the sins of this generation in this age that people are rejecting themselves for the way God made them to try and embrace something else in defiance of God. And because they're in the dark, and because they're filled with unholiness. I've read the stories of people who want to trans transition to the other sex, and always it's rooted in some type of pain, and their ungodly response to that pain. That they get hurt in life, and for some reason it looks like they shouldn't be to themselves who they are. It would be safer if they were the other, other sex. And so they begin to hate themselves, or they hate the people who hurt them. And they root in their being all this ungodly, unholy response, worldly, sinful of the flesh response to the pain of life. And they're into self-rejection and rejecting the creator who made them. 
And they enter into the unholiness of embracing what they can never be because down to the very every cell of their being, they are written XX or XY. You can't change that. And why is that? It's because the Creator made them that way. Now, I'm going to say that we need to have compassion for folks like that because they are in pain and their response is rooted in pain, but they need to be called to repent of the ungodly way they responded to the pain. Forgive the people. Why do you think forgiveness is at the heart of Jesus' message? Because he died to forgive us for all the ungodliness that we harbor in our hearts. And he says, if you want to live in that, you must forgive the people that hurt you. you got to die with me to all that unholy response to the way the world, to the way you reacted to the world. You know, it's sad to see this generation as they are departing from God and becoming like the world, the deformity and evil and destruction that they're embracing. Think about witchcraft for a minute. That list in the dissension list of the flesh. It's not just that Harry Potter made witchcraft cool and popular. You know that the word for witchcraft, I've said this before, in the, in the Greek is pharmakia. It's used so many times in the scriptures. And what do you, what do you, what's our modern version of pharmakia? Drugs, that's right. Pharmacy. Because mood and mind-altering drugs are a fundamental feature of witchcraft. We've got an entire generation who, without knowing it, are embracing the sin of witchcraft in order to change their mood or their feelings or their mental state because they are in the dark. And they're not filled with the light and holiness of Christ, and they're looking for experience, powerful spiritual experience. That's what witchcraft is, a search for power for the powerless, a search to try to control when they feel out of control. A search to get something that fills their inner emptiness because they are empty. And so for a brief moment, a flash, pharmakia will sol- solve that sense of feeling and make them go numb and give them a high and make them feel like everything's okay, it's cool, they're on top of the world. Because of why? Because they've embraced an evil spirit who's all too happy to fill them with false fulfillment. So they miss the real deal, the living water, in Jesus Christ. Folks, if we're going to see people get free of the emptiness that drives them into drug addiction and dependence on hallucinogenic and mind-altering and mood-altering drugs, we've got to lead them to repent of witchcraft and embrace the living God who can fulfill and fill and give them the living water. And I say, I want you to understand, the magicians in Egypt who served all this and used drugs with their worshipers to help them feel like what they were experiencing was real and true when they were worshiping idols and demons. And God judged them. That was part of the unholiness of Egypt that Israel knew was wicked and was pulled apart to be away from that. Part of what God was doing in his people to separate them from the unholiness of the world and prepare them to be a holy people. Now, what does holiness look like? Galatians continues. Why should you care? What do you want your life to look like? Unholy like I just described or holy. Now, the acts of the flesh are obvious. I read them. 
But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of living in God's holiness, the fruit of getting out of the flesh in the world and becoming set apart, a, a holy nation, a royal people, a people chosen by God, a peculiar people out of the whole world. That's what you and I are called to be, different from the world. This is what the life in Christ looks like. The, act, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They've crucified the desire for sexual immorality, the desire for impurity and debauchery. They've crucified the desire for idolatry and witchcraft. They've crucified living into hatred and discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. They've crucified that. Drunkenness and orgies and the like, they've crucified that as the way of finding fulfillment because they want to be part of the kingdom of God. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Now, he was talking to a church where that was a problem. They were living by the law. They were living by self-righteousness. All kinds of sin was springing up for people who lived by the law instead of by the grace of Christ sprouting up like weeds in a garden. And he's got to correct them all over again. I'm not thankful for what's going on among you, Galatians, because you started in Jesus, but you've turned back to the law to try to be good. And look what's happening to you. The flesh is taken over again because the law kindles sin. Adam and Eve didn't get involved with that tree until God said no, right? Ten commandments don't stir up trouble until you read them. Oh, I shouldn't do that? Well, let me go check it out. <laughs> That's what the flesh does. That's why it's got to be crucified. That's why God had to die on the cross and us with him. That's why we've got to be buried with him in baptism. Your baptism stands for the fact that you have died to all that crap. I could use harsher words than that, but that's what it is. Right? We're called to be holy, set apart, and holiness looks lovely. It looks good. It looks like peace. It looks like goodness to others. It looks like patience. It looks like sticking in there. It looks like faithfulness. It looks like endurance. It looks like facing suffering and saying, I'm counting all this for joy. Consider all the trials and tribulations you're going through, my brothers and sisters. Consider it pure joy when you face them because it's building up for you an eternal weight of glory. You know, Israel stayed and became Israel because they didn't get involved and sucked into Egypt because Egypt was not attractive to a people that it was oppressing. And sometimes God has to hand us over to oppression when the church has stopped being salty. What does it say? It says, what's, what's salt good for if it loses its flavor and savor? It's good for nothing but to be what? Thrown out and trampled underfoot. That's what happens to the church and to believers when we stop being salty. We're not different from the world anymore. And so we just get thrown out and stepped on. And you wonder, if you're wondering, why am I being stepped on in life? Maybe you need to check out, am I salty enough? 
Have I got unholiness in my life? Have I been living for the flesh somewhere and somehow I've become just like the world? I've lost my saltiness and I'm being stepped on because of it and I'm sick of that. Now, Jesus was never stepped on when he didn't want to be stepped on. He was free of that. He knew how to say no. He knew how to get out of a situation when it was time to get out. He knew exactly what to say when it was time to say it. He was on top. He was the head until he let himself be stepped on to become a curse for us. So we could get out of this results of being unholy. But this calls for repentance on the part of God's people. Where have we been living like the world? Where have we been embracing sin in secret? Where have we been holding on to some attitude of the flesh that's not pleasing to God and it's made us vulnerable to the enemy? It's the equivalent of idol worship. And we're paying the price. We're being stepped on by life. We're feeling like I've been thrown out. What's going on? Folks, there's a way out of that. Jesus became a curse. That same book enumerates that. Galatians, he became a curse for us who were under the curse of the law so that we could receive whose blessing? Abraham's blessing. That blessing of protection. That blessing of God's presence. That blessing in the home, in the street, in the city, in, in, in work, in relationships, in, in what you bake, in what you plant, in what you reap, in what you sow. That means we got to repent of the worldly ways of Egypt and her kin, of the acts of the flesh. Name them before God. Renounce them. Get out of them and embrace the Spirit. Say, Lord, I confess what I've done. You promise you're faithful and just to forgive us when we confess our sins, and I repent. I renounce them. You said whoever confesses and renounces their sins finds mercy. I renounce my sins. I renounce living in imitation of Egypt and its gods. I don't want to be drinking blood at the end of days as part of God's judgment on me. I want to be in Christ out of judgment because he took judgment for me. I want to take you there, brothers and sisters, because this isn't just about the Old Testament picture of holiness. In the New Testament, we are in Christ. He is the solution and the way of holiness. He is holiness incarnate. And if you have him in your life and you've crucified those things of the flesh, then he gives you a spirit and his spirit wells up in you and it takes care of all that stuff, the craving. He gives living water. Now, brothers and sisters, this isn't just for us. When the church is salty in a culture that's disintegrating because of sin, then the church starts to be the preservative for the culture around it. People who are dying out there, being trampled on underfoot because they're under the curse of sin, they start to be attracted to the life of those who are in the Spirit, who are in Christ, who have renounced the ways of unholiness, and who are living for God. They start to be attracted for that because they don't have it. Now, that's not everybody. Some love their evil ways, and they'll go to the grave like that. Not because God doesn't want them, because he hasn't given them a chance, but because they've chosen to thumb their nose at him and live as their own gods. But there are plenty who are going to come to the end of that road like the prodigal son and say, this is rotten. To be in the consequences of my own sin and living for the joys of the flesh was short-lived and empty. And I'm sick of it, and I want out. 
And for those people that God is out there, they're like the, 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 have you ever passed a cotton field where the cotton is white on top of it and it's ready to be harvested? They're white to the harvest. For somebody to come along and say, I've got the answer for you. I know him and you can know him too. He's got a name and his name is love. Let me introduce you to him. There are people out there who are living in the unholiness of Egypt, but are eager and ready to be born into spiritual Israel. And they, part of their attraction is the life of Christ in us, the holiness in us. So brothers and sisters, are you living in God's holiness today? Have you renounced the works of the flesh? Have you repented and come out of them? Not just the big spectacular ones, but the little secret ones, the little hatreds and discords and envies and jealousies that we like to harbor away and hide in our heart because nobody sees them. Guess who does? God. And he has something better. He has the fulfillment you can't get from giving ground to them. So give those up too. And he'll delight to give you himself in their place. Be ye holy, God says, because I am holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord when we get there? Yes. Amen. Good, good. That was the right response. <laughs> Glory to God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you that you made a way for us to become holy. That all our sins you bore on yourself on the cross. That there, Father, you were forgiving us. Paying the price of our debt yourself. And giving up your son out of love for us. We want that this morning, Lord. And we want to live into the fullness of your spirit. We renounce the works of the flesh and of the devil and all those idolatrous ways of the world. Those soul grinding and finally empty promises of fulfillment of sin. We want you instead, Lord. Jesus, you know that it depends on your spirit to be able to walk in the Spirit. And we're willing to receive today. Pour out Yourself on us. Pour out Your Holy Spirit on us and make us holy. We want that path, Lord, to crucify the flesh and to live for the Spirit. We want the good things that come from it. We want to be salt, Lord. Restore our saltiness where we've lost it. We don't want to be trampled on underfoot, Lord. We want to be shining like a a light on a hill that might draw many people to you because of the love and power of Christ in us. Lord, we lift ourselves up to you for mercy. And we are willing to share it abroad, Lord, as you so direct. We pray in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to sing our closing worship song and, and if you'd like to come to the altar this morning and pray if you'd like to commit yourself to God if you'd like to tell him I want to get into deeper holiness Lord here I am make me like you fill me with yourself I give you my stuff <laughs>
my junk. Give me your righteousness and purity. Wash me clean. The altar's going to be open as we sing and we worship. If you want one of us and the staff to pray for you or one of our people who feels called to pray for others, somebody can come up alongside you and we'll pray for you. Or you can just wrestle there with God. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkillhaven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.